This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Are you someone that asks thoughtful, insightful questions? There are many cases where that does not occur. Former CNN White House correspondent and current uh, George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs director Frank Sesno brings that topic in his new book forth called Ask More, the power for, I should say, the power of questions to open doors, uncover solutions, and spark change. And Frank joins us on the show right now. Frank, welcome. Well, it's a delight to be here. Thank you, sir. Uh, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what's been going on at the White House, uh, not necessarily with President Trump, but all the back and forth with the media uh, over the first uh, eight, nine days that he's been in office. Well, it turns out my book on asking questions and listening for answers is more timely than I imagined. Boy, did you hit that on the nose, huh? Uh, you know, I, I, we will talk about that and the way we can all use these questions in our lives, but I'm going to be asking some this evening. I've got coming to uh, George Washington University. University, a, a panel of White House correspondents and former White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer to talk about the role of the media and this new president. But more to the point, uh, Sean Spicer, the president's press secretary, and I will sit down for one-on-one conversation at the top of the event for 15 or 20 minutes. And I think there are a lot of questions, both in terms of the actual uh, guts of the policies that they're pursuing, of course. Those are always fair questions. Sure. But also the way they're pursuing it and the way they're communicating them, because uh, certainly with this immigration ban, a great uh, deal of the confusion and anger uh, probably can be tied to the way it was rolled out, the way it was communicated. And so... Um, some pretty powerful uh, and timely questions on that front. Well, to a degree, what what you're talking about in this book does play into that exact uh, point, and, and we've discussed this uh, at various elements of what we've seen over the last week or so, is the fact that th- a lot of what is going on right now seems rushed, seems kind of, you know, not thought through all the way. And that's uh, one of the things you bring up in your book that, you know, Questions have to be timely, but they have to be thought through, and and you really have to think about what you're going to ask and what you're trying to get from that question. Exactly. They have to happen on a lot of different levels, and this applies at the White House. It applies in your house. It applies in the office. Uh, That's why I created these sort of categories of questions to help us organize our thoughts and, and, and give us tools. One, what's the problem? How do you diagnose a problem? There's a whole series and set of questions around that. Two, if you're setting a, a, a course, a strategic course, what are the risks? What are the downsides? What are the alternatives? Do you have people's support? Uh, three, um, empathy, empathetic questions. Are you really connecting with people out there to understand how they're feeling and, and what you're listening? So to come back to the White House for a minute, uh, it's fair to say, did they properly ask and answer the questions around the nature of the problem yeah. Um, yeah. around this immigration ban. The strategic questions that I talk about in the book, I build around Colin Powell. Each chapter is built around a character. Yeah. Colin Powell went to uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, first Gulf War, with eight questions. He said, if you can answer yes to these eight questions, then we've done our work, and I would recommend, uh, and I think that there will be support, and we should go for the ground war to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Yeah. Those questions included, have we considered all alternatives? Do we know what success looks like? Well, so bringing it to today's example, do you think those questions were asked at the White House? (laughs) Uh, Um, Probably not. A moment ago, everything is coming out so fast. I'm not sure there was time to do that. 
We're talking with Frank Sesno, a former uh, a White House correspondent at uh, at CNN and also the author of the book called Ask More. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Since you're having Sean Spicer uh, in your in your meeting tonight, and I just the 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 process of being at the White House and what that is like, uh, especially the back and forth with the the media and that press secretary, because it, it is I think it's one of the more amazing jobs that that is probably in this country right now. And it's interesting because I think if you go back and correct me if I'm wrong, press secretaries don't exactly have a long life in terms of staying with this job because of the pressure and and everything that is all uh, enticed in in the job to begin with they last a few years in most cases but yeah. these are these are grueling grinder jobs uh they're 24/7 jobs and the press secretary very very interestingly i don't know how you know, uh, open or how experienced yet Sean Spicer, uh, you know, I don't know how open he's going to be or how experienced yet he is going to really reflect on this, but they are caught in sort of a three-way vice. They serve three masters who have sometimes very different pressures that they bring to bear. One, of course, is the president. They work for the president. Two, the press. They don't work for the press, but they work with the press, and they have to have a relationship there. And if they're doing their jobs, they're a two-way conduit. So they not only want to send information out from the White House, but they want to take what they hear from the press back into the White House. It's sort of a a form of intelligence because you have yeah. a sense as to what the what the pressures are. And the third pressure point, and this one is the one that really matters the most and is talked about the least, is the public. Ultimately, yeah. the press secretary, like the press, should serve the public. And that's why the information has, that's coming out of there from anybody needs to be accurate, fair, and credible. One of the areas that, that you bring up in your book is confrontational questions, and you bring up Anderson Cooper uh, as one of your examples in this. And, and seemingly, with, with what we've seen in the first few days and where we could potentially headed, be headed, uh, there, that area, I think, is probably one of the more interesting areas to really discuss right now, because that seemingly is what we are seeing now on, on a daily basis at this moment. And, you know, confrontational questions are very important because they hold people to account. And whether sure. that's at the White House or whether that's in a business or whether it's with a boss or a subordinate, it doesn't matter. They, 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 they really do matter. Anderson Cooper, I spent a lot of time with Anderson for the book on this. And, and he said, you know, he, he said, I actually hate confrontational questions, but <laughs> I've discovered that these may be among the most important. This is the whole you know, notion of holding power to account. The problem with confrontational questions is, and, and accountability questions is, they are often asked for the record. They seldom, you know, you're seldom going to have for your listeners who remember the Perry Mason moment where someone oh, yeah. drops to their knees and says, "You're right, I, I'm guilty as charged." Yeah, um, and so they'll respond with defensiveness. They'll refo- respond, you know, with resistance. They'll duck the question and dodge the answer. So. They need to be asked for the record. The danger that we have, especially with this White House and this press corps, is if all we get is confrontational questions, we're not going to get informative answers, and that's where the public could lose. So we have to be very careful on both sides of the press and the White House equation as to how we calibrate that confrontational stance, which goes with the relationship. There is and should be an adversarial relationship between press and power. But it has to be moderated so that we also get answers and information. Yeah, there has to be a level of respect there. And if you don't have the level of respect, as you kind of alluded to, then uh, uh, the information becomes less and less going forward. I refer to it as respectful adversaries. They need to be respectful adversaries. The danger, and it's a real danger, is if they become enemies. That's what happens in places like Venezuela and, and Russia. 
And when they become enemies, we fundamentally undermine the free flow of information and the sense that the public has a right to know. I was a White House correspondent uh, a million years ago in the Reagan and, and first Bush White Houses, and I've interviewed several presidents, and I've been in Washington for a long time. That adversarial relationship has always existed. Every president uh, has, has, has felt that way. Thomas Jefferson hated the way he was covered because he was covered with some of his infidelities and his constantly, you know, constant running back to Virginia. That's just baked in. Actually, they, our founding fathers wanted that. Right. And so the public, the public needs to realize that, and we need to embrace it, even as we hold media to account to do it well and responsibly. But is there an element of what we see now uh, partly linked to the digital society that we live in and the impact that social media and reporting through social media has had over the last few years. I think so. I think social media generally has coarsened our, our debate yeah. and and the, the world we live with, whether it's social media or emails or text. I mean, people are inundated with information. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is we've got to slow this down. We've got to understand that if we are going to be engaged citizens, committed partners, communicative, communicative partners, if we're going to be effective and imaginative and innovative in our places of work, we've got to ask really good questions, and we've got to st- slow down long enough to listen, really listen to the response so we can ask more questions. That's how you get to the, the core of accountability or creativity or whatever it's going to be. Well, and speaking on listening for a second, because I wanted to ask you about it anyway, you do talk about listening skills in here. And obviously in this day and age of where we would rather send an email to somebody than call them on the phone or, you know, instead of walking to the next building over to go talk to somebody about business, we just shoot them a, a text. Uh, listening skills are, are really dwindling in this country right now. The best interviewers on radio or television or anywhere else are the best listeners. The best lawyers in trial are the best listeners. The best questioners are the best listeners. And one of the things I raise in the book, which I got from somebody, uh, one of these brilliant people I talked to, is actually thinking, what kind of listener am I? Am I an interrupter? Do I have to fill gaps? Does silence make me uncomfortable? Because you can really use silence to affect sometimes. Am I a data person? In other words, I'm listening for numbers and trends and, 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 and data points. Or am I somebody who listens in and keys into stories about people? Knowing what kind of listener you are and really being mindful of that allows you to lay that over the whatever the, the, you're trying to do and what are you, whatever you're after in terms of information or revelation or what have you, and the kinds of questions both you ask and what you respond to. So, for example, if you're asking in a confrontational context, in a courtroom or in an interview or something like that, what you're listening for is hesitation, inaccuracy, hypocrisy, yeah. that kind of thing. If you're like Terry Gross, I cite Terry Gross from Fresh Air. She's a tremendous interviewer, and she likes interviewing um, artists and others. And you think about this in the workplace, like a job interview, and you're trying to really figure out what makes someone tick. What, where does their creativity come from? You're listening for altogether different things. You're listening for what she calls the essence of a person. We're joined by Frank Sesno, uh, former uh, CNN White House correspondent. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter social media, at BizRadio111, if you'd like to uh, right now. Uh, That being said, going back to Anderson Cooper for a second, you said he doesn't like confrontational questions. Is that a a personal trait of his 
And is that a kind of a factor in this process as well? Because if it's not in you to be confrontational and ask the tough question, it becomes very hard to try and be successful at it. Well, it, it can be a learned skill. I think he discovered that um, after he had his most famously controversial or a confrontational interview with Sir, Senator Mary Landrieu from Louisiana in the midst of the Hurricane Katrina mess, where he's watching bodies floating down the street, and he's interviewing her live on the air, and yeah. she goes into this, I want to thank this person, I want to thank that person, I want to thank the president. And he says, Senator Landrieu, I, I have to interrupt you here. Uh, you get why America's angry at, at, at this at this crisis that you know has gone on for so many days. Anderson and and I I understand this. I feel the same way. I don't like confronting people. I would much prefer to sing kumbaya all the time. Right. right. But if I'm on the air or, or tonight on stage, and I'll do it respectfully, I'm going to talk to Sean respectfully. I want to draw him out, but. He has a job. He's paid for by the American people, yep. as is the president, the mayor, the governor, whatever. Sometimes, as is your boss at work, yep. um, they are accountable for their actions. And um, even when we're confronting a, a, a kid, you know, one of our children, because our children are all perfect, but occasionally they make <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> we, we, we do it with purpose, not because we love it, but because we're trying to set the record straight and define through our questions and their answers the boundaries of accountability and acceptable behavior. You talk uh, a lot of, uh, also in this book about uh, creativity questions and uh, the importance that they they have in this process because of, I guess to a degree also, because of the type of, of society that we have right now. I love these questions. These yeah. are my favorite yeah. uh, in many ways. You know, I, I cite that, you know, a couple of guys sat around and they mused this, this question, what would it be like to, you know, drive around like a millionaire? And later they came up with an idea for Uber. <laughs> because the idea is if yeah. we can bring you transportation that's reliable, you don't have to pay for it, you, you feel like a million bucks, can we make that work? Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of guys by the name of Ben and Jerry did something similar with their very creative question. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say to you, uh, Mark Zuckerberg coming up with, you know, with Facebook. Right. A great brainstorming session yeah. in, any, in any business that requires this requires people to, to get to a place I called imagined reality. And you do this with a question. You say, it's five years from now. What do we look like? It's five years from now. We're number one. Um, here's an imagined scenario. Who would you call? What's the first thing you would do? Uh, if I gave you an unlimited budget, what would you do with it? If I cut your budget, what would you cut first? And then I'll give you the money back. Where would you add to it? So creating these sort of games, these, this imagined reality, gives people permission to think and leapfrog ahead. Uh, the best one I did was many years ago, I was on a college board, my, my, uh, my alma mater, Middlebury College, and we were sitting around trying to come up with our future. And we had a facilitator who said, okay, it's five, ten years from now, and this school is at the top of the charts. Um, what are you doing? He took a future moment and scenario and put it in the present tense. And it allowed everybody to, to, to dream big because they didn't have to worry about where the money was going to be raised or how long it was going to take to build the building. They just kind of projected themselves into the future. That's what these questions can do. They can unlock, you know, people talk about think outside the box. They'll allow you to just burn the box and just, just go to a different place. Mm -hmm. I, and, that, and you can't always do it. I mean, you can't always. But you get to that place. You articulate your goal, and then you work backwards to figure out whether and how you can get there. You also talk about another category is called bridging questions. And, and I would think that probably right now we are starting to see that, again, kind of going back to what we're seeing coming out of the White House right now, 
that the the reaction by people like Steve Bannon, like Sean Spicer, and and obviously the president as well, th- that bridging questions may end up being an important component uh, going forward of dealing with this administration. You know, I, I hope that what I've done in this book is to tell stories that can be applied in different places. You're absolutely right, and we're seeing this in our national life now. But we can see it at all, you know, in, in so many different walks of our lives, whether, again, it's at the office or the home. Bridging questions are, are questions that are meant to create a, a rapport, bridge a divide with someone who is suspicious or hostile or reluctant. You know, you go to your therapist, you go to your therapist because you want your therapist to help you. Right. I come on your radio show because you've invited me and I want to talk to you. Sure. But there are lots of people who don't want to engage in dialogue, who don't want to open up, who don't want to do that. So how do we use questions to reach out to them? And, and build that bridge. And the answer is carefully, slowly, recognizing that they are hostile or wary. And we try to create small questions to, to bridge the, the divide in small ways, a step at a time. Character for this is a, is, is a guy who um, advises and consults in what he calls in what's called dangerous threat assessment. He was John Hinckley's the man who shot Ronald yep. Reagan, he was John Hinckley's group therapist. And his whole thing is about how he put people as puzzles together to make sense and to bridge these divides, to just get people to open up, even if they're hostile or suspicious. To the phones we go. In San Diego, California, Jane is on the line. Jane, welcome. Good morning. I'm sorry I've got a bad cold, but I'm going to ask a question that I'm going I'm to go off because I don't want to cough. I wanted to know what uh, your guest thought about the press and answering questions that are based on unsubstantiated information or not, or information that has not been, you know, vetted or um, information that has not been proven, which is almost causing a conflict or um, kind of butting heads uh, with the press secretary. So, I'm going to hang up because uh, I have to cough. Thank, Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Well, thanks, Jane. I appreciate the question. I hope you get better very, very quickly and uh, and, are, and are back and around. <clears throat> I asked a lot of the people, if not all the people I interviewed for my book, what is your favorite question? And the answers were fascinating. My favorite question is, how do you know? And that question is applied to the media in the reporting they do in the sources they're talking to. It should be asked of the media when they are um, on the line and and are using anonymous sources. And it should be asked of our public officials. If an assertion is made from the White House or a podium, how do you know? We cannot have a a, a real conversation uh, about anything without knowing. And my first chapter is diagnostic questions, because it's what I call the ground floor of questioning, figuring out what's wrong. And critical in that is knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know and knowing where our sources come from so that we can trust them, right? You're not going to go to your doctor and say, yes, doctor, do open heart surgery here without making sure the doctor has actually been looking at the right 
at the right records, the right patient, the right test. We want to be absolutely sure that those that those sources are unimpeachable and that the information they're working from is as good as it can be. That should be applied across the board in our in our national discourse. Does it does it concern you though the fact that we in journalism we've gotten into this? I've got to get it out there first mentality in some cases, not not all. I don't want to be you know uh, throw that broad brush across there, uh, and, and that to a degree has impacted the asking of questions just like that. Yes, uh, we, we should be very concerned. People in the media should be very concerned about the low esteem in which they are held and, and, and take that apart and figure, and, and figure out why and address our, our critics directly, not in rebuttal, but in explanation. We owe yeah. the, the, the public an explanation as to, as to the media, an explanation as to how they work. So, yes, I think that's a very, that's a very serious question, and media should be asking themselves questions yeah. about why where that's coming from, and what they need to do in response. Great to have you on the show, Frank. Uh, hopefully we will see you here in Philadelphia, maybe at Penn someday, and we'd love to have you in studio. Thank you again. It's my pleasure. I hope to be there with you. Thank you. Frank says, no, the book, by the way, is Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. It is a really timely book, as we kind of alluded to at the top of the interview, a very timely book right now, uh, and great to have Frank Sesno and his knowledge here on uh, Knowledge of Work. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.